Hey everyone, welcome to What's the Why podcast with Tiago, Nick and Max. Join us on a perpetual pursuit of knowledge where we chat about the why behind all intriguing things happening on this rock called Earth. In no particular order, we'll start with my most interesting reading, which is Dunbar's number. It's something that we've been, I think, reading here and there on Facebook as it's been retrending. But the overarching idea is this the British anthropologist did research way back in 1992, but it only really got famous recently, um, about the maximum number of meaningful relationships we can maintain. And in a nutshell, that number comes up to 148. He rounded up to 150. But when you listen to him do TED Talks and things like that, uh, he actually explains that it's he he has a hundred percent confidence statistics wise if it lies between a hundred and two hundred and thirty um, relationships. And so, anyway, an easy way to explain this whole logic is that there are circles of friends, and you have the inner circle going out to the wi- to the wider circle. So your inner circle is about five uh, family members, and then you go up to fifteen good friends, fifty friends. And then 150 meaningful contacts, and that 150 is is, is the sweet spot that they talk about um, for meaningful relationships. In that you can maintain enough memory and enough engagement that you know they're not someone that is considered an acquaintance. Um, now, one of the things to call out here is they never really arrived at a perfect definition of um, what friends are. Like, what is the perfect relationship? Uh, so the idea is that those people that th- those are people that you can remember their faces, you can remember enough about their history uh, to have a meaningful conversation. And one of the nice ways that I-, I heard him describe was these are people that you wouldn't be shy to walk in uninvited and join in a conversation or a drink. And so yeah, so that was 150. You got 500 acquaintances, and then 5,000 people you can recognize. And this kind of lines up quite nicely with um, some research that was done in Glasgow, um, where they said humans uh, in their experiment they said humans can roughly remember about anywhere between a thousand to ten thousand uh, faces. So it's it really interesting in the world of anthropology and social sciences um, how these numbers kind of stack up on each other. So in his uh, TED talk, he said that. No, it wasn't tech talk. It was another speech he gave. He said that actually the number 5,000 was already given out by Pluto in 350 BC. And he, uh, Pluto said that the perfect democracy was 5,300 people. And the, uh, yeah, and, and so, so, you know, his joke was like, oh, it's been 2,370 years and we have learned nothing. Uh, but the idea here is that um, after these thresholds, um, a lot of the times social groups splinter off. Um, so the last thing that I will preach on here is uh, j- just some good examples of how these numbers stack up at the 150. <clears throat> he said, Neo- Neolithic villages, about 6,500 BC, they were roughly one th- 150 to 200 people l- large. Modern armies um, in a company is 180 people. Uh, there was a great example of the Gore-Tex company. So if you own any piece of like North Face clothing, you're pretty much going to have, uh, you're pretty sure, certain to have uh, um, Gore-Tex in, in your jackets and things. Uh, they actually 
re- they picked up on their research that after more than 150 employees in one location, they started getting social problems. And so they now, exclu- uh, they now build a new building every single time an existing building has over 150 employees. Yes, and, and so they're like real-life examples of now. And That's expensive. They- That's really expensive. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, anyways, we'll touch on the social media stuff. I know you guys have some questions there, but um, doomsday book villages, 150 people, uh, ideal church congregations, less than 200, and uh, 18th century English villages, 160 people. So it, the idea is that it kind of rotates around here, and after that, it kind of splinters out. Um, and the core research behind it was he took about 38 uh, primate uh, generas. And realize that so, so apes, so primates, they practice social grooming. And you know, that's when you pick fleas off of each other. And they realize that a primate could roughly track uh, X amount of um, meaningful relationships, uh, like, like people that they would protect and, and, and stay in a close group with. And they he used the same um, logic there of, okay. This is the number, and it was roughly linked to the size of your brain. If we then extrapolated that to humans, what was what would that number be? And so the regression landed on about 148. And he said, okay, so based on our brain size, um, there's like a spot just above the eyes and then on the side of your of your brain that manages social interaction. He says that we roughly can maintain meaningful relationships of 150 people before you know, you're just claiming friends. Yeah, obviously, logistically, it's hard to maintain friendship and contact with more than 150 people. Even with technology nowadays, it's hard for you to, to reply to all the messages that you get on, on WhatsApp. Isn't that something that also applies to, to social media, that Facebook and um, Instagram, for example, the average amount of friends is 150, some, something around that? Yeah, so according to this one, um, the, the modal number of friends, so the most common number of friends that people have, was around 100 to 120 people. And the hypothesis was that, yeah, social networking and the internet expands our ability to maintain relationships and friends. Not re- the, the math didn't actually say that. They said that even if you had more, you still engaged um, repeatedly or like the, 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 the number of people you actually spend most of your time with was still the same number. Uh, roughly the five to fifteen mark, and so according to this this theory, you know, th- I, there's so many layers that we can't touch on. But you spend about fifty percent of your social time on the inner circle of five, and if you're in a romantic relationship, that number is four. So the, <laughs> the takeaway is that relationships are expensive. <laughs> yeah. I, I I think he's a great speaker. You guys should uh, really look it up. And anyone listening. Uh, Dunbar's number. He he is a very eloquent speaker. I think you can hear he's a little nervous, but um, he, uh, yeah, I, I like the way he explains it. And you can look up his TED talk, Robin Dunbar. Um, he calls out pretty early in his uh, in, in his speech. He said um, he wasn't the one that coined Dunbar's number. It was the internet. And he said, "Oh, and it's so it was so fittingly uh, um, it was so fittingly." Uh, announced as such on Facebook and he kind of like thanked the audience for making his career. He's like 70 something years old now. So yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty endearing guy. They did say that there was a difference between men and women. He didn't announce it in his, uh, uh, in his uh, TED talk because he didn't want to offend anyone, as he said. But it seems that um, actually uh, female primates and, uh, you know, women uh, were better at maintaining slightly larger circles. And they engaged oh. with their social partners more. Why? 
if I so I I don't know why I didn't read that deep into it. Um, that was just a sense. Um, maybe there are like different parts of it that then skew towards men and women. But yeah, um, it can go into the evolutionary theory. Uh, I think that's a whole different rabbit hole that we can go down later. But yeah, um, it seems that technology doesn't seem to have an effect on, on yeah on this number on the number of friends you can keep and i don't think zoom will do anything different either because just because you zoom a lot more with your colleagues doesn't necessarily mean that they are now going to become your close friends for example no just i just said that just in the sense that uh if we don't if we didn't have whatsapp we didn't have phones it was harder for me to keep in touch with people like living in the same city would be would be harder for me to just walk down the street and say hello like with the phone you just pick up the phone and send a voice note and this is for me easier to keep in touch with you and with Nick and with everyone else, just because of that. Yeah, but yeah. on the other hand, uh, it is easier for us to get and stay in touch. But as a human being, do we have the bandwidth to deal with many more interactions? Uh, and even then, as as a person, do we even want to? Um, exactly. But let's let's talk about like personal personal experience. But have you ever felt at some point that, that you're there on a Sunday on a Saturday night and you see that you have like twelve unread WhatsApp messages, for instance, and you're just like, you know what, I don't want to deal with this now. I'm gonna keep it for tomorrow. Like everyone can of wait. Um, and so and and I guess that that number uh, or the number of the number of people like evolving around you within that circle changes over time as well right i mean you have like different um different ways of living i mean you evolve somewhere people around you do different things so i guess that so so i guess and, and max you're probably going to back it with that uh, you're going to back that up with the research but i guess that people keep coming in and out of that circle yeah. the same way that you go in and out of other people's circle yeah 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 a lot of those friend groups they are um they, they can shift so they never said that you you would keep it I, I think he did make a comment about the fact that the number of friends that you have after or the number of friends you can keep so you know how those numbers vary by person so you know like 15 is a guidance number there are differences and they say um the research suggests that the one thing that determines whether that number is higher or lower is actually on your intelligence so apparently if you don't have friends you're dumb no <laughs> causality is, is something different there but um you know i don't have as many friends as you you know i don't have 12 messages when i go to the club nick so i don't know what that says about my <laughs> lack of intelligence but um your friends can change but the number you have is roughly locked down so he kind of made a joke to the group uh, to, to, to the crowd where he said oh if you're already in your late 20s or if you're past your early 20s you're, you're you're locked in basically um so it 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 ties into one of the more deeper research articles that i wrote uh, read about um the biology of it which is the the parts of your brain that are responsible for this seem to be the same parts that are responsible for critical thinking decision making and so that's why they say you know intelligence and brain capacity so literal brain size is, is what's important one of the questions that I had, I think with Tiago when we uh, discussed this a, a long time ago, was uh, then would p professional social people like, um, I don't know, ambassadors and things like that, you know, like talk show hosts, are they better at it? Or are there ways to kind of hack the system where you can then remember more superficial things? And so they're not meaningful relationships, but you know you have the memory. Like, you know, that's the difference when he said, we're still not very good at defining what is a meaningful relationship. 
But is it a meaningful yeah, relationship to you? Is it a meaningful relationship uh, in the sense that it's a useful relationship? Um, so we've always been told, like, if you want to evolve in your career, if you want to work, like, work on that network. I mean, a lot of schools, for instance, they sell you that network effect. Yes, not only do you, are you going to get, no, no, like a brilliant education, but hey, there are there's a network of 25, 30, 35,000 alumni that you can then count on. Um, is that a meaningful relationship or is that just a, and I guess that goes in with like in, when you talk about ambassadors and in the case like any diplomats or negotiator, um, I guess that's, you're just good at making contact, building rapport. Is that a meaningful relationship? I don't know. No, no, not at all. So that would be, I think another part of like network theory, which is there are nodes. So your ability to connect as in the access of it, like there is a plug there or there's a wire, but you're not necessarily sending information. Yeah, so I think that that by definition is a totally different thing. Like your access to those people is what then education might give you and what traveling might give you. But you know, that, I, think, I think that resonates with me a lot because I've lived in so many different countries that at the end of the day, I mean, the amount of people I really keep in touch with, you have like that set group that no matter which country I'm in, I would, you know, we keep chatting, like, you know, Nick and, and Tiago, you guys are examples of that, right? It doesn't matter where I live. But then when I get to a new country, maybe then I will start engaging with then my group of friends there. So my group of, let's say, my group of 50 then, I guess, because I wouldn't necessarily be a group of 15, um, that would change. So my group of friends would shift slightly. I might only still be engaged with 50 people, but then maybe, let's say, 10 of those get replaced whenever I go to a new city, and then 10 from the previous city gets lost. So you're saying that eventually you will forget about us? That what you're saying, Max? <laughs> That's exactly the opposite of what we said, uh, of what I said. I just said you two are examples of the close. You see, thank God, you know, I might not be as smart as Nick right now because I don't have as many friends, but I'm not as dumb as you, Tiago. <laughs> okay, the question, because uh, you, you then, you recently or fairly recently moved to, to a completely new country that you were not familiar with, that you had no attachment with besides, um, besides your wife, obviously. How easy or how difficult, depends how you look at it, was it to then build that circle around you again? So you have your core members of your family and gratefully our friendship, but how was it, how was it to, to build another extensive one and to add to that number? It's been pretty hard though, but you know, with COVID, I guess something that a lot of people can understand is so many of your friend circles might start actually with work. How much on an hourly basis do you spend on work versus play, right? Like, especially if you do a job that's a little bit more taxing. So when I came here, I didn't have a job. So I had friends that were either through school alumni and, and so, you know, we touch base. But I would consider those more as, like, meaningful acquaintances. Not friends. Not like every weekend we'd hang out. So, yeah, no, that's hard. But that's got to do with how you can integrate. I don't think that has to do with whether I could expand my circle or not. Yeah, no, but I mean, circling back to the bandwidth, you've then moved into a new environment so you're kind of forced to then replace certain elements of your yeah. old circle with new ones. How easy or difficult is that? Because how do you, how in your mind, I mean, you, you, uh, you don't hold a list, right, of the 150 people you interact with and that you consider meaningful and then decide who you cross off. I, I think, I believe it's harder and harder, particularly as you age, also because maybe your habits, get harder like it get get more firm 
you know, like um, both has a function of interest and a function of time. So now, you know, to really connect, you either got to be really interested in random nonsense, you know, that 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 that, that educate you, or maybe you know you're also really into um, MMA, or you're really into I don't know travel and food. But you know, as we get older, those habits and those interests get more solidified. Even just the, your energy level, <laughs> you might not be going out every uh, evening to the bar. Like that number drops, the amount of connections you can even make drop, and then yeah, the chance of turning connections into friendships will get lower. Another really concrete point of this is: you leave another country. The only way to keep in touch now with the with the friends in the old country are um through facebook and stuff and skype so uh, unless you spend all that time the same amount of time you would have been socializing in a bar with four friends at the same time you now have to skype each one individually you know and so you now you just multiply the amount of time necessary by four are you going to have that time don't you you guys also find interesting that facebook an average of friends is like 600 to 800 but on instagram the average of friends or connection is 150 just because with Facebook, whenever you select to follow someone, you both follow each other. But on Instagram, uh-huh. you can select, if a friend of yours selects to follow you, you can go, yeah, I don't want to follow this guy, even though you so- met him in the past, even though you're French. You know, but that's a really good example of how sour things can get. Like, I know, how many people do you guys know? Tiago, you're one of these people. If you find out someone wasn't following you back, you would unfollow them, right? Yeah, immediately, yeah. So for me, if someone <laughs> doesn't follow think me about on it. Instagram, but a then- friend of mine... Okay, I won't yeah. follow them because I feel it's I feel it's in a way this person is sharing with me their story, their life, but then they don't give two fucking fucks about my life, about what <laughs> I have to share. Even though I don't share even though I don't share anything. <laughs> but that's exactly it. But that's exactly <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, but wasn't wasn't um I mean, even in the heydays of Facebook, wasn't it all about the amount of followers? And I mean, it's still that. I mean, that's what being monetized and sold. And also as a, I don't know if it was the same for you, but it was kind of a societal status that you had. Like, I have that many friends or I have that many link ups or I have that many. Well, now it's followers because it's all about. So I don't know. it, it, It wasn't not about meaningful relationship. It was just about look at how many friends I have. But they're not friends. They're just people that randomly clicked follow at some point. Yeah, it's a flex. Yeah, yeah. Well, but on that point, Tiago will like Tiago will unfriend someone or unfollow someone if they're not following him back. But he doesn't do that with um, celebrities. <laughs> you know, you don't ask Joe Rogan to follow you back, and uh, I'm I'm sure Instagram models don't follow you back, Tiago. <laughs> Tiago, thank you, Max. So my topic. <laughs> is all about how heat can influence productivity. So growing up in Portugal and growing through the crisis of 2001 and then 2008 and seeing how it affected Portugal and looking at the other European southern countries and, and seeing similar similar um, situations happening with them and noticing that their economy was also not as robust, not as strong as the northern European countries, this question continuously popped in my mind is heat influencing the productivity of our countries therefore our economy so i went through a bunch of of articles uh daily mail washington post harvard business review and all of them 
they had to find ways to store drink store food during winter because hunting and foraging was impossible to do during harsh winters. They learned to build warmer houses. The population had to cooperate more with each other in order to survive and so on. This type of cooperation and planning behavior became ingrained in society and can in a way explain their success. In warmer countries, you could forage and hunt all year round. You didn't need to build proper dwellings. It was easier to survive. So this relation between heat and productivity is not only visible between countries, but as well within countries, for example, Australia. The two coldest cities, Melbourne, Melbourne and Sydney, are as well the two wealthiest cities. In contrast, Darwin, which is the warmest cities, is the poorest city. But Darwin is a city with the, with the biggest resources, with the biggest mining resources, and is as well the closest to Asia, to that um, to the trading route to Asia. So there's an, if you would read all these aspects of Darwin and you compare it to Sydney and, and Melbourne, you would always bet in Darwin to be the most successful city in terms of uh, financially because they have all the resources and the trading uh, proximity to, to Asia. So they think that when it's too hot, they don't work hard enough? Heat will, heat will influence the, 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 the amount of work that you put in. The, if one degree Celsius in per year goes up, your, the amount of the work that you put in decreases by around 20 to 30%. What we mean by that, so if we take a, a good example of, I don't know, let's take Europe, uh, the gap in wealth between, say, the north and the south, southern part of Europe, is that the northern part had a more solid base to build on over the years. And so, like, over the past centuries, we've we've actually not been, yeah, working or living on the same basis. And so that m makes northern country a bit more efficient today is that what you're saying exactly that's exactly what i'm saying exactly all right not that long ago it was the mediterranean countries that were powerful and so maybe this is just a little bit of a bias of like okay was it the temperature or was it the fact that all the warmer places they had access to water that never froze and they had access to trade and they had you know well in uh england would kind of be a little bit out of the blue there because well in france because they were in colder climates that but they had access to the to 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 the ocean, so they could colonize a lot more countries because they had naval powers. That's that's true. Um, but we also know that the northern part, uh, or the very cold part, especially because you're probably referring to the Greek or the Romans, um, that all had all the powers, like that held power around the Mediterranean. Um, when you then say that northern parts of the world were also less colonized, I mean it, they were less inhabited just because people were less likely to survive there. But as it got warmer and as technology advanced, it was not such a big of a deal. So, you know, like as the, the usage of like clothes, shoes, uh, as your tools became better. And I mean, as like the Romans, for instance, also pushed colonization a bit further up north, wouldn't that have changed? And that the power actually shifted over to other populations exactly exactly so the article is not saying that there weren't powerful civilizations that that lived in warmer countries so you have the egyptians you have the portuguese the spanish the romans the byzantines the ottomans yes what the the ottomans what, yeah what this is proving is that be, back then it was easier to live in those countries it was easier for you to prosper in those countries so it made you more complacent in northern countries where it was much harder to to survive you had to become industrious and in all of this in all of these behaviors of you becoming more industrious and planning better for the winter 
whenever the technology allowed you, you gained advantage from that. You were you were able to do more with little that you would that you were foraging and you, that you were for, that you were farming. Does that make sense now? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this this research isn't saying that it's the right of all rights, right? This is saying it shows a connection. Was it a correlation or a connection of some sort? It's a correlation. Obviously, there will be way more factors well, that will influence productivity, but heat is one of the main okay. ones. There will be some examples, uh, some contradicting examples. For example, Singapore. Singapore is a very rich economy, as you guys know. But what the study was saying is that the majority of the Singapore inhabitants came from China. And China was was not as a warm uh, warm climate as Singapore is, so they brought those habits from China and that and that uh, planning and industriousness from China. The Mediterranean countries, though, practice siestas a lot. So wouldn't you say that that's like maybe a a, a life um, habit, like a lifestyle that kind of tries to compensate for the heat that you might see? True, true. That's so, one of the habits. Yeah, it's one of the habits. Yeah, but it's a habit is formed out of a necessity. It's just because you couldn't do any labor work between 1 p.m. and 4 p.m. just because it was too hot. Still is, by the way. Uh, and so people were just like, okay, no, we're going to do that in the evening. I mean, it's why, you know, like in Spain, you eat so, or in Portugal, you eat so late and you, you, you get... The siesta was just like the basic need of getting into like a colder area, like in the shade and let the hottest hours of the day pass so that you could then be more productive at night. It, didn't we read, Tiago, that um, it was before electricity was invented, I guess. The, li- the, the, the sleeping cycle of humans was actually different. We would go to bed really early and then we would wake up at like midnight or something and then stay awake for X many hours. And um, the literature used pretty nice words. They said uh, to, to socialize and perform activities that were otherwise unavailable during the day. And so basically, it's like, you know, you have fun, smoke cigarettes, chat with your neighbors and chat with your wife, that kind of stuff. And then people go back to sleep. So you would like sleep, wake up and go back to sleep. You would have like two, two just, just think of examples within, for example, within Kenya. You've been to Kenya with me and, and you notice that in Nairobi, it's hustle and bustle. People are working long and hard and it's, it's a cold city. Nairobi, Kenya is a, is a warm country, but Nairobi is cold because of the elevation of the city. Then you travel all the way to Mombasa in the same country. And it's a completely different lifestyle. It's poly poly. Everyone is going slowly. Everything is completely different and so so different to Nairobi. And you can see so many examples like this. Johannesburg to Cape Town. Johannesburg to Durban, where Johannesburg is cold. And Durban and Cape Town are warmer. And people are just like more laissez-faire, more like chilled in a way. No, Tiago, I think it's the crime. Keeps you on your toes. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that you speak about crime. But heat also influences violence. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So you yeah. looked that up? So, okay, so tell psychologists me. gathered some information from, from 2008 to 2017 from Chicago. And uh-huh. in the summer months, crime always peaks in July and August, in the hottest months, always peaks. Oh, um, okay. Did they elaborate? Yeah. Was it just because... The, the, <laughs> okay. They say that heat makes you more more intolerant to people, especially if you are in, in higher, in, in, in very big groups. It, it, it makes you, even makes you more willing to honk if you're stuck in a car. If it's too hot, you start honking at everything. You lose your patience much quicker if you're feeling the heat. Okay, so again, just poking holes into it. Um, 
crime spikes in the summer months when it's the warmest, but isn't that just also because there are exactly. more people outdoors? Exactly. And That's that need to happen. In they person. said of possibility, but people are also outdoors in May, in May, April, October, September, where the months are still warm enough for you to go outdoors. So there's no, nothing to explain why July and August would have the highest incidence in, in, in murders. So violent crime increases actually during July and, and August and um, non-violent crime increases during the other months. When do tourists go there the most often? Are violent crimes to foreigners or to locals? I don't know. I, I just make fun of you. I'm asking no, but I mean, it's, it, it's also that a lot of events are cramped into those months, right? Like if you're talking about um, festivals, as you said, people go to the beach. People are outside in bars. They get inebriated in the, like on the streets. And so I don't, I'm, I'm not even sure that it necessarily spikes. It's just that the number of occasions where you can express what that violence can be expressed is is multiplied yeah no <laughs> that was so poetic thank you you can express your violence yeah, no in a medium <laughs> that is more no but i mean it's much public, on a public stage. it's much more likely to happen when you're outside uh during yeah as you said during summer than it is when you're when you lock down during the the cold months of winter i guess yeah yeah, tr trying to mug a car in the snow is <laughs> probably not the best. But <laughs> <laughs> you can't feel your fucking fingers. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Oh gosh. <laughs> trying to stab someone with a uh, winter jacket on is just not that easy. Ugh. They, they actually they actually but put a bunch of people in laboratories and they. And they had to give shock, electrical shocks to each other. Obviously, it wasn't real electrical shocks. But as they increased the temperature, the electrical shocks were prolonged. Interesting. Oh, really? Yeah. And people just say, oh, fuck oh. you, man. This is too warm inside here. You're going to feel my pain. <laughs> cool. All right, all right, all right. Okay. So the warmer it is, the less productive it is, but the more violent it is. Uh, that, yeah, it's, that's yeah, a strong statement from this research. And, and how did they find correlation? Did I just uh, take the what the the average GDP per capita and they correlated with the average temperature of the country? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you would have some uh, outliers yeah. like Singapore, which has a very high GDP per capita. Singapore, UAE, even Kuwait has a very strong GDP. Yeah, true. Okay, yeah, but one de one degree increase uh, shifts one point one percent in the GDP. Okay, cool. Yeah, interesting fact, man. So, Max, can you give us like the most boring introduction like you just did earlier? No, um, fuck you, Max. <laughs> the most boring introduction? Oh, hey. hey <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, I'm gonna make uh, I'm gonna make uh, Max's job easier here. Um, uh, and, and transition to something else that I've been reading uh, recently and that, that really uh, intrigued me um, is that we are facing, or especially cities are facing a bit of a paradox, which is that despite having a growing in population or like a big growth in population or and employment, uh, the amount of people using public transport, and that's global, that's a global trend, is decreasing. And apparently has been decreasing for the past decade or so. So it's not even something you can imputate to COVID or anything else. It's just been a growing trend um, over the past years, 
which is really interesting because it doesn't really make sense. Um, you've all lived in very busy cities where you see traffic, uh, you see people around. It always seems very busy and, uh, um, as you said, bursting. Uh, and so, yeah, the, a bit of the research like went as to why uh, it is decreasing. And so, of course, you you may come up with uh, with like the easy kills. I mean, apparently delays are up, service levels are down in most cities and most public transport networks. Um, countries tend to spend less on on public transport than they are on other things. A good example uh, would be France, for instance, has been pouring a lot of money in their TGV program, which they're fast. Uh, speed trains uh, and trying to yeah. sell that technology abroad rather than investing in their more regional and local networks um, and or uh, in the states apparently people are spending a lot or cities are spending a lot of money in making stations look cool dandy and safe but not enough money on working uh, signals so um, that that leads to of course a, a lower service levels um, a lot of people have also been blaming terrorist attacks, recent terrorist attacks uh, over the past years on public transport, um, because of course there are easy targets. Um, so we can think of Paris, we can think of London, Madrid. But no, apparently the reason, like there are two main reasons, and these are a bit more um, structural uh, because all the the above, I mean, differ greatly from region to region. But globally, there are two trends um, that are that are explaining this. One of them is that people need to travel less. Um, so with the increase in the user, usage of smartphones, video conferences, uh, people are now shopping online. Uh, you can do your banking online. You rarely use the post. And it seems to be anecdotic, but if you put everything together, we have less and less reason to travel uh, or and by travel I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying big distances but even a short distance where you would you know hop on the tube or get on a tram you you i mean there are less and less incentives um and and that's that's the second one is that especially in uh, in cities people have more and better options to get around so we've seen in the past five six years uh, options such as uber lifts uh, more and more cities are investing in you know those uh, dockless bicycles that you can just pick up like easy to rent bicycles that you can just pick and go uh, and now we've seen over the past two years uh, those uh, battery-powered scooters <laughs> that are popping uh, all around. So yeah, it seems like people, especially in in urban centers, have um, yeah much more options uh, there, and that explains that people don't want to get on um, a tram or a tube, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, despite so, having yeah. So the number of people using bikes and using all all other uh, those electrical uh, I don't know how to call it uh, they look like skates is increasing and contradicting the number of people using public transportation. Is that what you're saying? It's not like people are simply not traveling more in cities or traveling less in cities. Well, they probably are. So yeah, I mean, people are probably still going places, but first, yeah, first of all, there, there is less need to travel um, and, and we travel differently. And so based on those two conclusions, uh, my questions or 
what I was thinking, especially this has been accelerated with, with COVID and everything, uh, where we actually stuck at home, uh, or we've been stuck at home for, for a long time, most of us. Um, what does that mean for the future? Um, uh, how are we going to travel? Will we have the same need to move places? Um, and as you said, I mean, users of bikes, electrical bikes have surged. Uh, so is that going to replace uh, the traditional way of like the, the means of transportation or um, is it going to be like a healthier mix and where are we going? So what's the future going to look like? Uh, where should authorities be spending money on? Um, should we then just say, okay, people are going to leave public transport and move to more individual means of transportation? Or should we be investing more money to make public transportation appealing again? to um to the people so they start using it again so as to i don't know reduce traffic and so taking um, taking health. london as an, as an example uh, people hate driving through london because you have to pay you have to pay a levy just to go through london something around 15 to 20 pounds just every time you pass through london you have to pay that so people are avoiding using cars so you would think that public transportation would go up but using the tube in london it's so so uncomfortable and, and so un unhealthy because it's stupidly hot and then if you use it every single day for one week even your snot comes out black so what i've noticed is a lot of people using those electrical skates bikes and the city is actually investing in having roads specifically only for bikes so just not that lane but like like a proper road for for bikes with two three two three ways uh, just to just to make people use more bikes so I, I would definitely agree with you it's it's more health uh, health conscious decision that people are making and also financially the tube in london is 150 pounds per person for one month just for zone two and three um, it's, it's just stupidly expensive the money that you can save just riding a bike and people are doing it man even if it's pouring rain people will, will use the bike and, and bike around yeah. yeah so i would definitely say that it should come to authorities or to countries in general as a necessity right now to consider those infrastructural spending. So roads, um, dockless bikes, charging stations for, I don't know, bikes or cars as part of the public transportation, right? For sure. For sure. Uh, right. Montreal has been closing more and more roads and made them pedestrian only. So you can take, I think you can take a bicycle through most of them. But yeah, most people want to walk now, whether it's for health or not, it's a different story. But, you know, before we, everyone starts saying it's better for the environment, I mean, think about the amount of waste that it generates as well. It's not without, you know, yeah, we're not burning energy. It's not fuel. But uh, consumerism with motor, with bicycles and stuff like that, think about how many bicycles get abandoned. That's still metal, rubber, you know. Humans find a way to, 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 to create waste no matter what. We have two scooters at home, and we're part of the problem. We bought two scooters last year. They broke down because the manufacturer was crap, and they, they had battery problems. One of them sent me a new one and replaced it. That one broke down as well. And now what I'm trying to get to is that's, that's three scooters that are now just gone that have gone to waste. And I bought accessories for them. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's, you're still charging the battery. It's like when they say electric cars are x, x amount better. I mean, you're still powering it. You still got to provide power to that battery. So, uh, I don't know. I, I read a couple of articles that said, hey, you know, maybe not as black and white, you know, and, and there's a lot more pollutants 
with regards to driving that we don't consider like um <clears throat> the dust the yeah. brake dust that comes yeah. off they said that yeah it's like terrible for you yeah but it's no in no, no way shape or form comparable to to cars and to buses and to what they generate right no way shape or form oh no no um the the brake dust comes from cars and buses mm-hmm. actually it's gonna be interesting to see how we uh we're gonna move around because there were a couple of um uh, ideas as well that um people would move more and more towards um driverless cars um and uh, that we would see like it would slowly replace taxis and and other cars and people would just like because for comfort and health reasons you would just like a driverless car it wouldn't even necessarily belong to you it would just be a car that you kind of hop on kind of a sci-fi yep. <laughs> sound to it but <laughs> it's individual right so maybe it's not the public trans- transportation that's going to end or or decrease it's just individual transportation that's going to increase yeah. people prefer the the comfort of being alone or being within the within their friends and not sharing with three thousand strangers in a tube there's always a status symbol if you have the money you're gonna want a car yeah. even if it's that freedom to just go anywhere on a weekend you know, on the weekends now, we do this communota here. So you can pay, I think you pay 40 cents a minute for the car. And it's an app. So you like walk up to it like you do with Lime Scooters, click it, and then the car, you can take the car out for a ride. And let's be honest, London Dupe sucks. <laughs> it does. It's so uncomfortable, doesn't it? Isn't it, It does, does suck. It's hot. It's super hot. In some ways, unbearable. You can't even breathe, bro. It's, it's so, so hot. I think Switzerland had the best public transportation I've ever been on. Yeah. Anyways, any other points to add? No, we're good. We're good. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thanks for reading up on that uh, this week, guys. And we will see you all next week. Have a good Looking one. Looking forward to it. Thank you for listening to What's Why Podcast. Thank you. Thank you.